Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Recently, I've been sleeping flat on my belly, and my chiropractor said that if I'm going to do that, I should really have as firm a mattress as possible. So... I didn't have to get a new mattress. I just cranked my sleep number up all the way to 100, and I've avoided any lower back pain that sometimes comes with belly sleeping. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. Home is your creative canvas, an expression of your unique style. Only Wayfair has everything you need to bring your vision to life. It's the place to shop for everything home, from sofas and beds to dining sets and decor. Wayfair makes it easy with fast and free shipping, even on the big stuff. They'll even help you set it up. Our house is full of Wayfair finds, from wall art to rugs to vases and more. Our go-to is always Wayfair. Every style is welcome in the Waverhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And remember, this week is going to be a little different. This is the second of two episodes we dropped today, so already winning on a Monday. And if you missed it, I have some pretty great news this month. I gave birth to my very own mini crime junkie. Her name is Josie. She is perfect. She's everything. And you can actually catch a peek at her on my Instagram at Ashley Flowers. So because I literally pushed a baby out of my body a minute ago, I need a breather. But I also would never leave you guys hanging on a Monday. So instead of giving you no episodes, I'm giving you two stories told by yours truly. Our partners at Sirius and Stitcher are amazing, and they're letting me give you guys for free a series I did that was behind their paywall. It was a series called Precedent, and it's actually just like a Crime Junkie episode, but there's a little more meat behind it. Because not only am I going to tell you a true crime story, I'm going to specifically tell you the stories behind the words and phrases that are integral to our true crime vocabulary. The cases that set a precedent forever changing our criminal justice system. Sometimes it changed it for the better, and sometimes for the worse. This is the second story we dropped this Monday. Then me and Britt will be back. Now, in the other episode we dropped today, I told you how the sex offender registry became a thing. That was a giant leap forward for law enforcement, for public safety, for everyone. But sometimes when legislation is new, there are holes. Holes that can't be spotted until it's too late. 
The same year that the Wetterling Act was passed in 1994, one little girl fell through just such a hole and into the abyss of evil. Because even though sex offenders were now required to register with law enforcement, in July of that year, there was no formal community reporting. No flyer in the mailbox, no media release, no publicly accessible database to tell residents that a convicted sex offender was now amongst them. That the person who just moved next door might not be who they say they are. Before there was mandatory community reporting, there was Megan Kanka. This is her story. July 29, 1994, was the kind of East Coast summer day kids in New Jersey dream of, and seven-year-old Megan Kenka was no exception. Her summer days were spent outside riding her bike to and from her friends' houses until it was time to come home for dinner, or at least by the time the streetlights turned on. According to legal documents, around 6.30 that evening, Megan's mom, Maureen, laid down to rest, knowing Megan was going to be outside with her friend Courtney, riding their bikes around the neighborhood. But when she got up a short time later, she was surprised to find out Megan still wasn't back home. Her bike was out on the front lawn, according to History.com, but Megan was nowhere in sight. Maureen knew right away that something was very, very wrong. And so she headed out right away to start searching for Megan, going door to door and asking anyone she came across if they had seen her recently. One by one, the neighbors gave her hopeful but unhelpful news. They had seen Megan riding her bike, but it was maybe an hour or so before. No one had put eyes on her recently. One neighbor, a man named Jesse Tamendaquas, told Maureen he had actually spoken to Megan when she and her friend stopped by to ask him about his boat, which he'd been washing outside in front of his house, but he hadn't seen her since. With no sign of Megan on their street, Maureen wasted no time calling police, and they arrived at the Kanka house by 8.49 p.m. that evening. Armed with a photo of Megan and a description of what she was wearing that day, investigators began to do their own canvassing of the neighborhood, talking to all the same people Maureen did. As they tried to piece together a timeline of Megan's last movements, one glaring discrepancy stood out. Jesse, the man who said he'd spoken to Megan about his boat, said that she rode by him at about 2.30 that afternoon. Now, what catches police's attention about this is two things. One, every other witness placed Megan on her bike between 5.30 and 6 that evening. Second, even Jesse had said he'd seen her later in the evening when he talked to Maureen the first time. But now that he was talking to police, his story was changing. Police wanted to know why. The investigator talking to Jesse pressed, Did you see her any other times? Jesse added that he actually did see her on her bike between 5.30 and 6 as well. Now, clearly, when you have a missing girl and a grown man with a shifting story, that's every red flag you need to keep pressing. 
The investigator continued asking Jesse questions about his movements that evening. Were you with anyone else? Did they see Megan? Jesse tells the officers that he has roommates, and they're actually the ones who own the house, but they were all away between 5.30 and 7, so they wouldn't know much. But at this point, I mean, it's almost 10 p.m. now, all his roommates, including the owner of the house, were now there, and police were able to get access to the residence and permission to do a search. Based on a legal brief filed for this case, this first search was for Megan herself. They looked through the house, the boat, and the property the house was on looking for any sign of the young girl, praying that they would still find her alive. But they didn't find any sign of her. However, they did find a few things that gave them pause. Pause enough to prompt a second, more detailed search of the home just a couple hours later at 12.30 in the morning. This time, they got written consent from the owner to look through the house for anything that might lead them to Megan or any sign that she had ever been there. They searched the house room by room, starting with the one occupied by the homeowner, a guy named Joseph Cefeli. And it's there, under Joseph's bed, that police found four pairs of women's underwear. At least, that's what they thought at first. But one of the pairs of underwear had little teddy bears on them. They questioned Joseph about what they found, first reading him his Miranda rights, which he waived. And Joseph insisted that the underwear, including the ones with the little bears, belonged to his ex-girlfriend and were not taken from Megan, or any child for that matter. He pointed out to police that they were adult-sized, and besides, he had concrete proof receipts from a shopping trip that evening that he was nowhere near the neighborhood during the time Megan went missing. They next interviewed Brian Jennon, who was actually out shopping with Joseph at the time Megan went missing. It seemed their talk with him was just to verify Joseph's alibi, which he did. They hadn't found anything incriminating during their search of his room, nothing tying him to Megan. Finally, the officers talked to Jesse, a sweating, trembling, Jesse. The officer's later accounts in court say that from the get-go, Jesse's demeanor was really off. His body language was defensive, and he was incredibly nervous any time police tried to push him on his alibi, which, by the way, wasn't much. He was home, and since his two roommates were out together, he was also alone. Based on the way he was acting, police knew something was up. They could feel it in their guts. So they asked Jesse to come to the station for more formal questioning while officers finished their search of the house, yard, and the boat. The police's interest in Jesse had shifted. And so it was there, at the police station, just before 3 a.m., that they first read him his Miranda rights, which he waived. Jesse gave police an official written account of his day. In it, he said he'd gone out that day with his two roommates to purchase the boat. And when he got back, he set to work washing the boat in the front yard. And that's when he saw Megan. And wouldn't you know it, his story changed again. This time, he wrote that he saw Megan even later in the evening. Not between 5.30 and 6, which is what he'd said last time. Not between 2.30 and 3, which is what he said the time before that. Now he was saying he saw Megan at 6.30. 
Now, that discrepancy might seem minor, something a person might do if they weren't keeping a close eye on time, if they were busy, you know, like head down washing their new boat, and truly didn't know for certain whether a little girl came by on her bike at 5.30 or 6.30. I mean, what's an hour, right? But here's the thing. Truthful people, they just say straight up, I don't know. They say, I was washing my boat, so I don't know for sure, but I definitely saw a little girl on a bike sometime after dinner, but before my roommates got home. Something like that. And that's all they'll ever say. It's the changing story. The 5.30, the 2.30, the 6.30 detail that's a classic tell for investigators that something isn't adding up here. But having a gut feeling someone is lying and knowing for a fact they are Those are two very different things. What police needed was to catch Jesse in a lie, and they needed to do it with some kind of physical evidence to back them up. At this point, Jesse was cooperating with police, saying he just wanted to help in any way he could. And so police were like, you know it would be a really big help if we could search your vehicle. So Jesse said yes. When they went to search, they were looking for something really specific. Blood. And not Megan's blood like you might be thinking. That'd be a great slam dunk, but this isn't the movies. What they were looking for was Jesse's own blood. You see, he'd been complaining of a hurt hand, and police could see it was visibly wounded. He told them that he'd recently cut it on this curtain rod that hung across the back window of the cab of his truck. But police weren't buying it, and they figured if he cut himself on that curtain rod in his truck, well, they'd be able to tell. But of course, that appeared to be another lie, because when they searched his truck, they found the rod, but no sign of blood or skin cells that would suggest someone had cut themselves on it. But they did find something interesting. A toy box. A clean toy box but a toy box nonetheless, and that stuck out like a sore thumb. Even though they felt deep down Jesse was somehow involved in Megan's disappearance, police didn't have enough to arrest him. So they released him at four in the morning with a promise to be back in touch with him soon. And it turned out soon was much sooner than Jesse could have expected. A mere three hours later at 7 a.m., Officers running on no sleep and adrenaline headed back to Jesse's house. They wanted to search his boat again, more thoroughly this time, and they needed consent from Joseph to do it since the boat was on his property. Joseph consented to the search and the officers climbed on board. But the boat actually became the least interesting thing to them because as they were searching, they noticed something else. Something that hadn't been there when they looked the last time. Something that would turn out to give them everything they'd been looking for. It's such a nice perk to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places. But working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anyone else. And that's been great for me especially because these last few months, I've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting with our team from northern Wisconsin to Utah to the middle of nowhere, Indiana. No matter where I go, I'm able to stream, make calls, or get those case-altering DMs from sources, which that's my favorite part. 
With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speedtest Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, when you have something weighing on your mind that's taking up time and energy, the best thing you can do is to talk about it. But sometimes that's also one of the hardest things to do, too. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Junkie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crime Junkie. While police were on the boat, what they noticed is that sometime between when they got there that morning and when they were going to leave, someone had taken out the trash. They figured it was worth a shot to go through it. You can learn an awful lot about a person from what they throw away. You can tell what they've eaten, where they've shopped, what they did. And as it turns out, what was in the trash was everything police had been looking for. According to the legal brief on the case, inside Jesse's trash, the officers found, quote, a rope with some knots tied in it and a substance that appeared to be dried blood on it, the waistband of a small pair of pants appearing to be for a child, and a piece of material that matched the waistband, end quote. Less than an hour after collecting this evidence, the police were at the Kanka's front door asking Megan's mother to do the unthinkable to look at the small pair of pants thrown out with the trash and tell them if they belonged to her daughter. They did. Detectives brought Jesse back into the station and continued to question him about his movements the previous day. Every time, whether he was writing it down or saying it out loud, his story evolved, but he continued to deny any knowledge of Megan's whereabouts or what could have happened to her. They showed him the little girl's clothing that they pulled from his trash, but again, he denied having anything to do with Megan's disappearance. He said that the items that they thought were clothing were just rags he used at work. They asked if he'd take a polygraph, and Jesse agreed. But he failed. Three times. By this time, police had been questioning Jesse for six hours, and he hadn't left the room. But then, something changed. Jesse asked if he could speak to one of his roommates, Brian. Police brought him in to speak to Jesse. Brian didn't ask any questions and didn't waste any time either. According to court docs, one of the first things Brian said to Jesse was, quote, you're going to need a friend on the outside. I'll be that friend. Then Brian said, quote, they got you. They got you. They got you. 
Jesse, defeated, put his head down and responded with five words. She's in Mercer County Park. Within an hour, Jesse led police to Megan's small body, just as he said they would find her, hidden in long grass and weeds, in a park just a few minutes from her home, with a plastic bag over her head. With nothing left to hide, Jesse finally told police the truth about that day. And as he did, the horrors of what Megan endured slowly came to light. Horrors the public learned during Jesse's murder trial a little more than a year later in October 1995. During the trial, the jury heard how on that day, Jesse lured Megan into his house by telling her she could see his puppy. And I know, a puppy, that is so cliche, but Jesse actually did have a puppy, one that he walked through the neighborhood on the regular. Jesse didn't know Megan, but he knew of Megan. According to court docs, the prosecutor told the jury, quote, This was not the first time that the defendant had noticed Megan. To the contrary, you will learn that that man, the defendant, had been watching that little girl for months. He had had his eye on Megan, his thoughts anything but pure. End quote. When he got her inside the house, a house that he had all to himself because his roommates were gone, he took Megan to his room and tried to kiss her and touch her. But when he did, Megan screamed and immediately tried to leave. But Jesse didn't let her. He couldn't let her. Because if she told anyone about what he'd just tried to do, he knew he'd be going back to prison. You see, Jesse had done this before. According to reporting by John Goldman in the L.A. Times, Jesse had two prior convictions for sexual offenses against minors, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old on two separate occasions. He had done real prison time but was let out early even after he had proven he would reoffend. He told police that he had been, quote, slipping for a while and getting those feelings for little girls. In that moment, when Megan cried out and tried to run, Jesse said all he could think about was not going back to prison. In his later confession, he said, quote, I was afraid she would tell her mother. I was afraid I would get in trouble and go to jail. End quote. He said he struggled with her. She hit her face and head on the doorframe and on a dresser, and when he hit her across the face, she began to bleed. That's why he put a bag over her head so that the blood wouldn't get everywhere in his room. Jesse said he used a belt to strangle Megan and that he sexually assaulted her multiple times. I won't go into graphic detail, but he's told many stories which make it a little unclear when exactly Megan died, before or after the sexual assault. And remember that toy box police found in his truck? Jesse used that to transport Megan's lifeless body out of the house and to the park where he eventually led police. He tried his best to clean up the mess, but ultimately all the evidence police needed was right there. It was there in his house. It was there in his car. And right there on the palm of his hand. Because another one of Jesse's lies came back to bite him. Literally. That wound, he said, came from the curtain rod in his truck well, it turns out that was actually a bite mark, proof that Megan had fought for her life in Jesse's bedroom that day. A forensic odontologist was called in to compare the wound on Jesse's hand with impressions of Megan's teeth, and it was a perfect match. 
They actually had to remove her lower jaw during the autopsy to get those molds, a fact that the prosecution made sure the jury heard. But it sealed the case. Jesse was found guilty of Megan's murder and sentenced to death, though that was later changed to life without parole in 2007 when New Jersey abolished the death penalty. Jesse has tried to appeal his conviction and sentence. There are a number of bonkers claims in his appeal, and not too much surprises me anymore, but there was one claim his legal team made that was a first for me. They argued that the fact that he would be in prison for life should be a mitigating factor when considering the death penalty. Try and follow me here. They asked the court to consider that the fact that Jesse had been caught and would be locked up for life is a mitigating factor. That basically he shouldn't get the death penalty because he'd be locked up and no longer a threat to young girls. Here, I'll read straight from the document when they ruled it was basically BS. Quote, The fact that the defendant would not be a continuing danger to little girls also is not mitigating evidence. That argument is based on the premise that the defendant will be incarcerated for life and will have no contact with children. This court has repeatedly rejected the notion that the length of a defendant's potential non-death sentence is a mitigating factor. Defendant cannot circumvent that conclusion by couching the same argument in different terms. End quote. It's honestly some ridiculous chicken-or-the-egg stuff. And the court was having none of it. For Megan's mom, Maureen, a guilty verdict was cold comfort. Nothing was going to bring her daughter back. But Megan's death had highlighted one important thing the newly enacted Jacobs Law, the one requiring sex offenders to register, left out. And that's public notification. Maureen Kanka had no idea that there was a twice-convicted sex offender living across the street from her, one whose victims had been little girls just like her daughter. And Jesse wasn't even the only sex offender out on parole and living in the area. His other roommates were sex offenders as well, and they all met while they were in the prison system. I'm sure Maureen thought, surely, if there was someone or multiple someones who are a real threat to my family, to my kids, surely there is a system in place to protect us from that kind of evil, or at the very least, one that gives parents the information so they can protect their kids. But there wasn't. And how could they have known? And so just a few months after her death and a year before Jesse was convicted of her murder, Megan's Law was created as a subsection of the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offenders Registration Act. Megan's Law required states not just to have a registry, but to notify everyone in a neighborhood if someone on that registry moves in. I mean, you can't protect your kids against a threat you don't even know is there. And Megan's Law armed parents with the information they needed to keep their kids safe. But nothing is perfect. The sex offender registry itself had its critics from the start. Critics who say that the criteria for being tagged a sex offender is too broad. In some states, people who have urinated in public appear on the registry alongside habitual sex offenders. They can all be treated equally in the eyes of the registry. According to a 2014 Slate article, quote, 
In at least 29 states, from Alabama to Wisconsin, consensual sex between teenagers is a crime that can lead to sex offender status, end quote. But there is a difference between making a dumb mistake and committing a life-altering violent offense against children or against multiple children. Yes, we should absolutely have a registry for the Jesse Tamendaquases of the world, the kind of predator who steals innocence, who has been given the chance and who has proven over and over again they will not stop. We have a right to know who they are, where they are, and what potential dangers they come with. Maureen should have been able to learn who was on her street, who was watching her young daughter. But in our haste to fill holes in our legal system, did we inadvertently create more? If there's one thing I'm personally learning in my journey through this series, it's that we didn't start with a complete system for justice. We've been piecemealing it together, one terrible tragedy at a time. Sort of feels like a game of whack-a-mole, you know? Something pops up, we stomp it down, and then something else pops up right next to it. And in our stomping down, we keep leaving holes that don't quite have the intended effect. Next week, we're back to our regular Crime Junkie episodes. But later in this year, I'm going to come back and bring you some bonus episodes and talk about some of these other precedent-setting cases. They might not always drop on a Monday, so make sure you're following the show to get notified. And I'll see you next week. To find all the source material for this episode, you can go to our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. And we'll be back on Monday with a regularly scheduled episode. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel brought to you by the capital one venture x card earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips plus receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1300 airport lounges and a 300 annual credit for bookings through capital one travel Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details.